ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Good afternoon, Selena Green with you on this Friday afternoon. Coming up, what could be the implications of a reported grain supply contract signed between China and Russia? And are you someone in the market for a new tractor? Well, after some boom years, tractor sales in Australia are back down. Sales are returning back to what we'd more describe as more sort of normal levels. We had two years there where we had approximately 20,000 tractors sold in each year during the latter part of COVID there. More on that to come. And uh, some news coming through about a $50 million biosecurity precinct that's being announced in Adelaide as we speak. It'll be used for produce being sent from fruit fly exposed zones. And I'll be more on that in the second half of the program today. So stick around. But first today, there have been reports this week that China and Russia have just signed their largest grain supply contract to buy 70 million tonnes of grain worth $40 billion. For the last few years, China has been the largest buyer of Australian wheat. So what does this new Russia-China deal mean for our international grain exports? Well, agricultural market analyst Andrew Whitelaw says while this is a significant deal, China will still need to buy a lot of grain from Australia. It's significant for one thing, and I think the one thing it's significant for is that, you know, that increasing relationship between these sort of states, you know, Russia and China, North Korea and China, and uh, I guess it's, it's, it's a sign of the changing sort of geopolitical landscape around the world. And, you know, Russia has sort of, in the last couple of years, really reverted to being a bit of a pariah state and uh, it looks like the relationship with China is going to become more and more important for them. Does it still leave plenty of room for other countries to export grain into China though? I mean it sounds like a lot of grain but in the scheme of it is it? Look on on first perspective 70 million tonnes that's a lot of grain however you start to look into it you know it's over 12 years you know, if, if it's just spread evenly over those 12 years, you know, you're talking 5.8 million tonnes, still sounds like a lot, but it's not that much in the grand scheme of things. Because China in recent years, the import volumes of grains have been nothing short of astronomical. So if we look at the period, say, 2016 to 2020, you know, it didn't even get above 15 million tonnes of wheat, barley and corn combined. But in recent years, you know, we've seen 2021, you know, over 50 million tonnes. Last year was, you know, about 35 million tonnes. So these are big volumes of, of grain that they have as demand. Mm. And, that's, and, you know, we would expect that potentially continue to increase as their, their wealth increases and, they, um, and more of their pigs going, for instance, going to you know, more intensive, more professional outfits, less swill feeding. So five and let's call it five and a half, five point eight million tons a year. It is big, but it is only a, a relatively short percentage of the overall overall sort of volume that's going into there. And we've been very good in the last couple of years. We've had 
no barley, obviously, uh, but China will be our biggest customer for barley next year, probably. Uh, but we have been the biggest, uh, you know, seller of wheat into there. They've been buying astronomical volumes of Australian wheat. I think the the latest figures I could see it was six point four million tons of Australian wheat uh, for October twenty two to September twenty three went into China. So it's a pretty big market, but then. There was also a, a significant trade deal done between the US and China buying US wheat. So how secure is that footing of, of having access into the Chinese market for Australian wheat growers? Look, I think we, the door is open and I think that's the important thing. Obviously, in the last couple of years, the door wasn't open for barley, so mm. we couldn't get any barley in there. Regardless of what price we were, we were never going to get into any barley into there. But I think one thing that people have to remember and this is the key thing. Grain is grain. As long as it meets the quality requirements, you know, if somebody wants milling wheat of a certain protein, they're then going to look at the price. And the price is going to be the key determinant in any commodity trade. In the last couple of years, Australian grain has been cheap. Australian wheat has been cheap. We've had some big crops. We've been cheap. And that is attractive for Chinese buyers. At the moment, yep, there's been a couple of large purchases of U.S. wheat by China, and the reason was because it was cheap. And at the moment, Russian wheat is cheap. So there's a bit of a, a, a pattern emerging that people buy grain when it's cheap. Andrew Whitelaw there. He's an agricultural market analyst with Episode 3. He was talking to Joe Prendergast about reports Russia and China have just signed their largest grain supply contract. Well, a merger of Pulse Australia into Grains Australia is now officially complete. Pulse Australia was a growth and development body for nearly three decades and is the latest group to be absorbed by Grains Australia under the Peak Industry Bodies Consolidation Plan. Grains Australia Chair Terry Enright says the collaborative strength will benefit growers. Grains Australia was established to uh, coordinate industry good activities. In that vein, we've uh, amalgamated Wheat Quality Australia, Barley Australia, the Grain Industry Market Access Forum, National Working Party on Grain Protection. Now Pulse Australia is is um, another body that we've um, assumed control over in operations, and that's consistent with the uh, the mission of Grains Australia. So it's a further development of our operations, really. So can you explain to us where the process is now at? Okay, well, well Pulse Australia has been a uh, an established entity for many years. In the discussions we've had with them, uh, we, we went through a process of uh, uh, looking at the options we had. We were, wanted to preserve the operational activities of Pulse Australia. So those discussions uh, resulted in a, a decision by the Pulse Australia board to formally agree to uh, merge with Grains Australia. And, and they went through a meeting process internally with that. Uh, and following those discussions, we uh, signed documents uh, a week ago to effectively merge the operations. So the activities that uh, previously were undertaken by Pulse Australia will be undertaken by Grains Australia so that we know slippage there in, in what uh, the activities that are necessary for the industry will continue to provide those. Uh, but more importantly, I think we're looking to expand that effort and I think that's the important part that we provide those resources and to make sure that the activities important to Pulse Australia or which are currently important to Pulse Australia, are, are uh, resourced and expanded as we go forward. You mentioned that 
this consolidation has been happening for for a while now with a a number of of former groups. Are you are you finding that growers are still able to get the the support they need under that one roof? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this will uh, enhance these operations. Uh, the inclusion of these bodies under one organisation, Grains Australia, gives them better security, better access to resources and a more strategic approach across the various commodities. So issues such as trade market access sit right across those bodies and there's efficiencies there because we have uh, operations expanding across all operations. So from a grower's point of view, we've got bodies that were formerly separate but doing different functions. We're now coordinating those. So there's some synergies across those various commodities and I think it'll lead to more efficient operations and uh, should provide better value to growers in the long term. Is it a little bittersweet though, Terry? I mean, Pulse Australia had close to 30 years of advocacy. You were, you were a Pulse grower you, yourself. Is it sort of sad to, to see some of these groups, even though they're amalgamating to be a, a bigger, stronger um, entity, but some of these groups that uh, have played such a part in, in history now sort of, I suppose, become something else? Yes, there could, there could be some uh, thoughts, I suppose, that uh, the, the activities that have been so important, to the, you know, this, in this case, case, the pulse industry, which is an industry that incorporated you know, growers, agronomists, researchers, traders and exporters, and they've done that for over 30 years. That is Grains Australia Chair Terry Enright speaking with Tara Leden- Leden- Tara Delangraft. Sorry, Tara. It is 14 minutes past 12. You're with Selena Green this afternoon. Well, the weather forecast is having an effect on tractor sales. The market is slumping as we forecast the El Nino after running hot during the previous years. Sales for September fell by 23% on the year before, but the industry says it's not worried just yet. There's a lot of unusual circumstances to take into account, according to Gary Northover, Executive Director of Tractoring and Machinery Association of Australia. Well, certainly... uh... 2023 is a different year to the ones that we've had recently. Um, sales are returning back to what we'd more describe as more sort of normal levels. We had two years there where we had approximately 20,000 tractors sold in each year during um, during the latter part of COVID there, and uh, that's now drifting down to a number that's going to be closer to 12,000 tractors this year, so big drop. What's more normal, I'd imagine, for your industry? Is it 12,000 figure or was it the 20,000 figure? It is. No, the 12 is definitely historically what we consider to be a pretty good year. So why were the last two years in particular so big in tractor sales? So a culmination of a couple of things. Certainly the government's uh, instant asset write-off and temporary full expensing programs were encouraging buyers to take advantage of that tax break and buy machinery, get the full 100% tax write-off. And generally the conditions were just so strong. I mean, we'd come off years of drought, if you recall, and uh, the market boomed for commodities and uh, farmers were taking advantage of that and uh, stocking, restocking their fleets. Yeah, it was really just a perfect storm for two years there. So if we look at, say, September this year and a 23% fall in sales compared to the year prior, that maybe doesn't look as bad to someone like you because the market was so hot the two years prior to that. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think the challenge for the industry now is as you come off two years of really busy times, is it going to be a soft landing? Is it going to be a hard landing? We're just watching that one with interest because clearly it's new territory for us and, uh, yeah, there's a bit of adjustment required. 
And is it a good chance for your industry to take a breath? Really, over those two years of, of high demand, we had COVID and, and supply issues as well. People were being told you better organise your tractor almost a year in advance or, or parts, etc. were difficult to come by. Is this a, a good chance to reset for your industry? There's no doubt about that. I think all those things you've described played out for a couple of years and it's really a credit to the industry that they were able to you know, deliver machines in the numbers that they were against that sort of challenge. So no doubt taking a breather is nice, um, providing it results in a soft landing, as I said. Um, what we don't want to see is the industry to fall off the cliff. So that's just one thing. We're... Are you worried about further falls if this trend continues in terms of sales? Look, not worried, um, but certainly... Uh, you've now got not just the, um, you know, the, the sort of uh, after effects of a, a couple of boom years, the tax incentives have been removed, being compounded by the fact that we've now had an El Nino declared for Eastern Australia, which we don't know how long that's going to be, how severe that's going to be. Therefore, no time to be complacent about where the industry's heading. In terms of the difficulties the industry had in terms of getting equipment into the country for a while there, there was chartered ships and all sorts of things happening mm. for a while. Uh, has that eased? Has, has that pressure of, of the supply chain eased over the last year or two? Because the demand has perhaps slowed, that pressure has eased. There's, there's still significant lead times. If you wanted to order a new tractor today, you're still looking at you know, 12-month lead times before you saw it. But by and large, I think the demand-supply equations come into a bit more balance than it previously was. That's not to say they're not still problems with uh, particularly the Roro uh, machines that come through Wharf. If there's any hint of a quarantine issue there, then um, can be some pretty dramatic uh, hold-ups, uh, processes, some of that stuff. So still some challenges there. Gary Northover, he's Executive Director of the Tractory and Machinery Association of Australia, speaking to Warwick Long. Australia's dairy and red meat regions create around 9,000 tonnes of silage plastic waste. Unfortunately, up to 60% of that goes into landfill. That includes the stretch wrap around bales and the thicker plastic used for silage bunkers. But Dairy Australia has been working on establishing a nationwide silage plastic recycling scheme. They said there's been a great deal of interest from farmers to be part of it. One problem is there's not enough recycling centres here in Australia to take all the waste. I spoke with Dairy Australia's program manager for manufacturing innovation and sustainability, Ian Olmsted, about what work has gone into this so far. We've been working really hard over the last couple of years just trying to understand the different types of systems for collecting plastic from farms and then um, moving that through to recyclers. We've looked at a number of ways in which that's done overseas and the different methods that have been established. But what we've landed on as our sort of preferred method here is very similar to what's done in New Zealand. There's a group called Plasback in New Zealand that have been operating a, a system that uses a large bin and liner for farmers to collect plastic in. So they take their, their stretch film, separate the netting from that, and then just shake off sort of any other large solids and then roll it up and shove it in those bags. They fit about 100 to 150 wraps in those. Then it gets uh, what picked up or it can be delivered to a recycling depot. Then how would it work from there? So it would offer a, uh, an on-farm collection service where, where farmers could pay for a collector to come and, and pick that up from farms or they'd have the option potentially of dropping it off at a, at a local waste transfer facility and we're just working out the relationships with different councils to, to enable that or it might even be a private drop-off. Would it be likely be a cost involved for farmers? Uh, yes. Unfortunately, there's really no way around that. I think at the moment, there's really no current cost for managing the plastic unless you're, you're actually taking it to landfill or you're having it picked up on farm. And there will be a cost 
um, but we think that it's comparable or less than current practices. By that I mean if they are taking it to a, a waste transfer site or a landfill, they would actually be incurring a landfill levy charge, which is often anywhere from $250 a tonne up to $450 a tonne, depending on where you're at. And then if you're actually storing it in skip bins on your farm and getting that picked up, that can actually be a lot more expensive. We're pitching this game to be less than that. What kind of things can this plastic and this waste be recycled into? It's a good, good quality plastic, but it's quite a tough plastic to recycle. One of the things that we found quite challenging in the domestic context is just very little recycling capacity here in Australia. What they can recycle it into at the moment is into pellets that can be used in uh, garbage bags or builder's film and the sort of construction materials. And they can also be recycled through to plastic fence posts and other sort of composite materials like that. But there are groups overseas in Europe that have got sort of more sophisticated cleaning and recycling equipment that can actually take it through to a pellet that's able to be then recycled back as a proportion of uh, silage film. That to us is kind of the holy grail, if we could get to that point. So I understand that you did uh, a bit of a trial of, of how this might work with uh, farmers in uh, Western Victoria. We had a project that was funded under the National Product Stewardship Investment Fund program, and through that we ran a trial in Western Victoria. We actually had about 160 farmers or so put their hands up to be part of that. We were only able to select about 90 of those. We worked with them for almost a year, just looking at testing different aspects of that plasback system, as well as a couple of other systems, just to get an understanding of how they felt about it and what the sort of warts would be on that type of approach, and get a sense of how the collection, on-farm collection would work versus the drop-off, and just how clean the plastic could be when we're doing that. And then also we wanted to test the cost of, of moving the plastic how well it was recycled, all those sorts of physical aspects and practical aspects of of running it. But that was really successful. So we found that the plastic that was collected through that was really excellent quality. The recyclers are really happy with that in terms of the work that the farmers have put in to clean it. And the response from the farmers too was was great. So it was all really valuable for us in terms of taking the next step of putting in place an ongoing system. That's the next question then. Where are things at now and and what is likely the next step? I understand you're looking for interest to perhaps roll this out now as a, a national scheme? We're working with a group called Plasback, uh, which I, who I mentioned earlier, that are running the scheme in New Zealand. And they have committed to establishing a, a similar program here in Australia. So at the moment, the, the, the big limitation for us in terms of going national is the fact that we really have limited recycling out, outlets for the plastic. And so we're going to have to sort of temper our approach in terms of going too big too quickly um, so we don't want to end up in a situation that we've seen like we've seen recently where we've collected a bunch of plastic and done really well with that but then we don't have it, an outlet for it so my understanding in, in terms of the ongoing discussions with Pupsack is it will look to start in Western Victoria again and, and build on the sort of the momentum that we've created there and then gradually expand out as the recycling outlets become more proven up. We know that there's a couple of large scale investments that are going to happen in one to two years' time, and we know we've got a couple of recycles that we can send it to now, but they can't take everything that we collect if we were to be wildly successful. So we just have to slow the roll out a little bit. Baby steps, but it's a work in progress. That's Dairy Australia's Program Manager for Manufacturing Innovation and Sustainability, Ian Olmsted. You're listening to Selena Green on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill.
For the last time this week, let's head to the Weather Bureau and Hannah Marsh is our forecaster today. Hello, Hannah. Hi, Selena. Much exciting weather coming our way as we get to the end of the week. Well, we've got this trough that we've been talking about for a few days, as you mentioned, and it's currently uh, through central and eastern parts of the state. Behind it, we have much cooler maximum temperatures. We've also seen areas of cloud as well, but ahead of it, we're still seeing those warm temperatures. So running through some of the temperatures that uh, it's been to so far today, uh, at Sejuna, it's been to 19, Port Lincoln, 18, Wyla got up to 24 degrees. Cooper Pedy also at 24, Woomera at 26, still quite uh, hot in Renmark with 36, uh, Clare 25, Murray Bridge at 33 so far, Victor Harbour 26, Kingscote 21 and Mount Gambia has been to 28 so far. So this trough, uh, we've got a load developing along the trough over Kangaroo Island and as that continues to move to the southeast, it'll strengthen. So we'll start seeing uh, the winds pick up, particularly about the lower southeast, wrapping around that low, particularly uh, tomorrow afternoon and evening. So associated with that, we were, we will have fresh to strong and locally severe gusts about the lower southeast coast tomorrow evening. We'll also see some showers develop. So there's a chance of seeing a spot or two about western and southern coasts today. But then tomorrow we're looking at those showers extending over the southern agricultural area and near western coasts and uh, also the far southwest of the Flinders district. And... With the winds coming through, there is also the possibility of seeing some areas of raised dust about the far northeast tomorrow. Temperatures will be a bit cooler compared to uh, what they were yesterday and what they were today in some places. And as mentioned, the winds will be moderate to fresh southwest to southeasterly. So running through some of the temperatures for tomorrow, we're looking at 19 degrees and cloudy for Sejuna. 18 for Port Lincoln, 19 becoming windy at Wyala, 25 for Cooper Pedy, 24 at Woomera, 26 for Broken Hill, 24 at Renmark, 17 for Clare, 20 at Murray Bridge, uh, 17 for Victor Harbour, 18 at uh, Kingscote and 16 with showers at Mount Gambia. Then as we move into Sunday, the high pressure system gradually drifts to the south with the low pressure system moving further out to the east. So the showers will start about the southeast of the state but they will contract southeastwards and clear by evening. Temperature wise we're still looking at cool to mild temperatures in the south but they will grade to hot in the far northwest and the winds will start to ease on Sunday as well. Then as we move into Monday, our weather's dominated by a high pressure system. So we're looking at mainly dry conditions, but we do have a trough that will start to establish through western parts of the state and then move through the state on Tuesday, bringing further shower activity and increasing the winds again. Uh, Also on Monday, we're looking at a cool start, particularly about inland parts of the agricultural area, so the possibility of seeing some morning frost patches. Uh, Otherwise, temperatures we're looking at uh, mild in the southeast, grading to hot to very hot in the very far northwest of the state. And again, the winds will start shifting around to the north, so we're looking at moderate to fresh northeast to northwesterly winds, but this change will shift winds southwest to southerly in the far west, extending throughout on Tuesday. 
Having a look at the cumulative rainfall totals until midnight Tuesday, we're generally looking at less than 2mm about the agricultural area and also near the western coasts. There is the possibility of seeing some local falls of 2 to 10 millimetres about the lower southeast and isolated falls of 5 to 15 millimetres about the far southeast coast, and that is mostly associated with this low pressure system uh, into tomorrow. Thank you, Hannah. Have a great rest of your Friday. Thank you. Same to you and your listeners. As Hannah Marsh there, our forecaster today at the Weather Bureau. So let's take a look at the western inland of New South Wales for tomorrow. A sunny day in the upper western district with north to northeasterly winds, 15 to 25 k's an hour, shifting south to southwesterly, 25 to 35 k's an hour during the morning, and then turning west to southwesterly by the middle of the day. Overnight temperatures between 16 and 19 in the day, they'll be between 31 and 40 degrees. For the lower western district, mostly sunny conditions, northwest to northeast. Easterly winds 15 to 20 k's an hour, turning northwest to southwesterly 15 to 25 k's an hour in the morning, and southwesterly 25 to 40 k's an hour throughout the morning. Overnight temperatures there between, well, around 14 degrees in the day. They'll climb up to between 25 and 37 degrees. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Good afternoon and happy Friday. Coming up in just a moment, a $50 million investment into a new biosecurity precinct here in South Australia. The produce industry says it should help avoid any future issues with fresh food supply that we may have seen in recent years, but also make our fruit and veggies more competitive for export as well. And have you ever tried any Swedish wine? Sweden's Wine Personality of the Year is actually in South Australia at the moment. She is a guest international judge at the Limestone Coast Wine Show. She'll tell us more about what wine is like in her country and what she thinks of ours. But I think Australia as a whole, um, you are so much at the forefront on many levels. But I think as many other countries, you get stuck in being great value for money. And you deliver such good, good character and like easy to like quaffable wines. And it's risky to get stuck in that as well. Quaffable wines. I love that term. More from her soon. But that's all after we get headlines from Richard Davies today. Good afternoon, Richard. Hi, Selena. In the news this hour, the US president has addressed America from the Oval Office saying more support is needed for Israel and Ukraine to ensure America's national security. His speech follows his trip to Israel and after an agreement was reached with Egypt to allow some aid to enter Gaza. Australian GPs say the dangers of drinking should be highlighted by putting graphic health warning labels on bottles and cans of alcohol, just like packets of cigarettes. The AMA in South Australia supports the move. New research from the Australian National University in Canberra suggests human consumption of kangaroos is an environmentally friendly alternative to other meats. It's found kangaroos emit methane at a much lower rate than other livestock. Currently, a lot of kangaroo meat goes to waste in the form of culls. And the Royal Flying Doctor Service has unveiled its patient transfer facility at the Renmark Airport. Until now, local patients being transferred to metropolitan hospitals have been cared for outside on the tarmac. There'll be more news at one o'clock.
Thanks, Richard. Richard Davies with those headlines. Well, yes, a new $50 million biosecurity facility will be built at Paraka here in South Australia, helping to shore up domestic food supply, but also better place our state for export of our produce. The project's just been announced as we speak, with a combination of $9.8 million in federal funding, $4.2 million from the state government and $36 million from industry. Angelo Damazi is the CEO of the South Australian Produce Market, ahead of the launch, I had a chance to catch him quickly and ask about the location of the facility, which will be based in the heart of the market itself. Yes, we've got two stages that are going to be built, uh, one in the heart of the market in, uh, in the precinct and uh, one on a greenfield site on, uh, located on the market on the southern side of the market. Now just explain to us what the purpose of this biosecurity precinct is. Well, look, first of all and foremost is to protect our $1.4 billion horticulture industry in South Australia. It's uh, to grow our exports and create and save transport costs to interstate. So the biosecurity precinct, it's, uh, it's a post-harvest facility uh, for the treatment of fresh produce. Uh, includes state-of-the-art biosecurity treatment in infrastructure, a quarantine area and inspection facility. Uh, and also allows us to inspect and quarantine product uh, and treat product from fruit fly infested areas within the state. So uh, ensuring it's a safe distribution to retailers across the country and uh, overseas markets. So how does it work? You've got produce that comes in after it's being harvested. It comes into the site and then what happens? So basically, uh, if it obviously uh, will come from a, an area that is infested, that'll be obviously uh, tracked through uh, transport, ensuring that it's, uh, it's an enclosed transport right through to the facility. It's managed all the way through the facility, inspected, quarantined if there's an issue with it, and, uh, and the different post-harvest treatment with our uh, partners, TriCow Australia. And is it just produce coming from areas where there's known fruit fly outbreaks? So will there be other produce from other areas tested as well? No, basically outbreak areas only. I mean, product that's uh, come from an area that's uh, freedom areas obviously can continue to move uh, freely as, as normal. And the focus is on fruit fly. Are there other biosecurity risks that it could potentially be set up to search for or inspect for if there are other outbreaks of concern? Yeah, well, being a quarantine area and an inspection area, certainly you know, when we do have other diseases and uh, infestations that come through, that we can treat those products. But the foremost is uh, for fruit fly. Obviously, we've currently got some outbreaks in parts of the Riverland. And uh, in 2021, we had medfly in the city and right here at Baraka. And that really provided a a problem with supply chain uh, management and ensuring the product uh, got into uh, the supermarkets and overseas markets. And we don't have a facility here in South Australia. Growers have to send product to Victoria and Queensland costing them about a $6 million per annum, not, not to mention the, you know, the carbon footprint in terms of transporting. And uh, it means that the, this alternative is more sustainable alternative and uh, ensures that produce can get to consumers and overseas market faster and fresher. A saving costs, a saving time, but as you say, it should shore up that uh, domestic food supply uh, and that continuous domestic food supply uh, better than previously? Exactly. Yeah. You know, I said we. Uh, one of the good things we have is a pest-free area uh, for many years, and in the Riverland. And uh, because of that, we don't have uh, facilities or quarantine facilities in South Australia like they have in the eastern states. Um, and the ironic thing is that our stone fruit growers uh, last year m- all their products uh, to the eastern states, 
and so we didn't get much of the local product, uh, especially in the areas that uh, were infested with uh, fruit fly, and we were receiving product from interstate. So how erotic is that, you know, not being able to enjoy our own local produce? And in terms of uh, sending our produce into export markets, uh, is this uh, something that you'll be able to use to sell that uh, internationally as well when you're sending produce overseas? Exactly. So uh, obviously in the next uh, three years, we've got stage one and two being built. We're going to create some $100 million of extra export into overseas markets, creating some 172 direct and indirect jobs, both here at the markets and in the region. So it's a win-win for everyone. Angelo Damazi there, who is the CEO of the South Australian Produce Market. It is just going on 23 minutes to one. Well, the fire danger season has already started early in several districts across South Australia. The rest of the state will come online in the coming weeks. Well, down in the southeast lies tens of thousands of hectares of radiata pine tree plantations feeding into hundreds of jobs in the area. And they're one of the last places that you'd want a fire to take off. Well, that's why forestry companies run their own firefighting fleets, which work with other agencies such as the CFS. Well, that includes 141, a company that leases the forest from the South Australian government. It's busy preparing its crews for the fire season. Yesterday, they held the second of their start-up days for crews as held out at the Caroline Forest, which is just 15 minutes from Mount Gambier. So what sort of work goes into protecting these valuable forests and the communities that neighbour them? Well, I headed out to Caroline and caught up with 141's fire manager, Justin Cook. Justin, we're out here uh, surrounded by the uh, the pine plantations of 141 soaring above us. So we've got a heap of, uh, of your fire crew out here. Just explain what today is all about. Yeah, today is fire start-up day. So each year all of our returning firefighters um, come to a day to refresh their skills and also to do the burnover drill, which is an annual requirement of the CFS and the CFA. Now, these are firefighters uh, employed by 141, but they, they're not firefighters all year round? Uh, we've got a combination of different pe- people here today. We've got OFO employees who work full-time for 141. We've got uh, our 15 summer crew who work for us for the summer period, 1st of November till 30 April. And then we also have our contract casual firefighters who we call in uh, when we need additional firefighters when the fire danger reaches the very high and extreme levels. When you've got everyone on deck, how many are we talking about? OFO's entire fire organisation is made up of 120 people. Um, so that's regional duty officers, fire supervisors, firefighters and the logistics support team. And you need that many people because we're talking about a vast forestry estate here that uh, you're looking to protect? Yeah, we've got uh, about 80,000 hectares of pine plantation um, and to protect that in association with the CFS, 141 has eight fire tankers and five bulk water carriers. Um, So eight tankers with four people is 36, five on the bulk water carriers, six fire supervisors, regional duty officer, uh, someone on the bulldozer and five people up the fire towers. The numbers soon add up. Now, as we're standing here, you've got, I can see your stuff out there in their uniforms and their PPE gear and we've got trucks out here. They're doing various activities. Just talk us, uh, looking around the side, what's happening? Yeah, we've got three stations operating today. So the firefighters will visit each station. It takes about 45 minutes at each one. 
The first station is doing the burnover drill. So that's if um, firefighters are threatened by fire, they'll get back in the truck, wind down the heat protective blinds, turn on the protective sprays and do a mayday call for assistance. Then the second exercise we've got going is practicing four-person canvas hose lay. So that's our main method of attacking fires in the plantation. The fire tanker will park on the fire break and crews will go into the plantation laying canvas hose and working on the flanks of the fire to put it out. And then the last exercise we're doing is drafting and the use of foam. So we're using today as an opportunity to train our firefighters in one of the requirements um, to be recognised as a firefighter with CFA in Victoria. So the training that they've already done with CFS is recognised and then we also need to do some uh, additional practical training and provide evidence of that to the CFA and our firefighters will go from being brigade members to brigade firefighters. Because um, we should point out where we are standing today out at Caroline, it's just a what, what, quite a stone's throw, but uh, the, the saying goes. But we are very close to the Victorian border, so there there is a crossover. You've got plantations on that side and this side as well. Yep. So 141 has about uh, 90% of our plantation in South Australia and 10% in Victoria. But the other thing here, we've got um, OFO plantation on three sides of us and Green Triangle Forest Products plantation on the other. So that sort of demonstrates that all the plantation growers work together and if there's a fire on one grower's land, um, firefighters from the other growers will also attend to assist in putting that fire out. Now behind us, as you mentioned, one of the stations you've got firefighters doing a burnover drill uh, and that one is obviously a situation your firefighters would never want to end up in but this is something they must do every year to be allowed out onto the fire ground to, to refresh those skills? Yeah, that's right. The burnover drill is an annual requirement of both CFA and CFS. So after today, we'll be updating our firefighters' training records. Um, but yes, we, we train for the burnover drill a lot, but we hope that we never need to do it. And one of the things there is that we have safe operating systems to keep our firefighters out of harm's way um, so they don't need to do the uh, burnover in real life. And this is all ahead of the fire season here in the southeast. We know in other parts of the state it has already started. Important to refresh these skills before the fire danger season starts, but listeners might be able to hear the wind uh, around us. It is quite a hot day. We can see the heat sort of shimmering off at a harvested area over there. So important to keep these skills and people ready to go all year round. So the fire danger season will start in the lower southeast in November. Um, the 141 summer crew will be starting on the 1st of November and running through till the 30th of April. Uh, and if there was a fire between now and 1st of November, the 141 staff who are already on deck are ready to go and all of our fire appliances have been had their winter service and um, are ready for the upcoming fire season. That's Justin Cook there. He's the fire manager with 141 in the Green Triangle. It's, what is the time? It is 15, closer to 16 minutes to one. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Well, the Limestone Coast Wine Show has been on all this week, giving winemakers in the region an opportunity to put their best vintages to the test and have their drops tasted by some of the best in the business. One of the judges was Madeline Stenrith, who travels the world as a wine consultant, spending her time in places like France, Chile and South Africa.
She's one of only two masters of wine in her country and Sweden's 2022 Wine Personality of the Year. Reporter Elsie Adamo asked her about the current wine industry and culture in her home country of Sweden. You know, Sweden is part of um, it's like what you would summarise as a monopoly market, which means that Sweden, Norway, Finland and also Iceland, which is a tiny little place, but they all have monopolies to... Um, so you can't buy wine from any other store that is not run by the, by the monopoly. So they have... a like a centralized buying um, department in Stockholm. And so everything that reaches the store has, go, has gone through the purchasers of, um, of the monopoly. And it's a, it's a very strict system, which means that there's no way to find a bottle of wine anywhere in the country unless you go to this shop that is government-owned. The industry is um, it's booming. It's been booming for the last 20, 30 years in terms of wine. There was 30 years ago, people drank more beer and spirits and blended, you know, like grogs, <laughs> gin tonics and vodka Russians and things like that. And then uh, as people started traveling more widely, they started to understand the wine, uh, wine culture. And from there on, it's been growing. So I was one of the first sommeliers in the country in 1990, which is 23 years ago. And today, I would guess there's about a thousand sommeliers in the country. And I'm a master of wine, and there's three of us in the in the country. And it's just, I would say, it's it's an exploding market. Knowledge is very high, and the interest is very high. So it's a very positive trend when it comes to wine. So you get to travel so widely as part of your work and experience wine in so many countries. How's Australian wine standing internationally? There's been a lot of talk about negatives because of the China effect. And I can see there's a lot of sadness and desperation with a lot of producers who used to sell grapes to the to the top guys who were had first, they were really out in the market and they were... They were delivering the message and they were selling a lot of wine. And so when they don't get to sell it, then the growers don't get to sell the grapes to them. And then they start to become a little desperate, which I really understand. And then suddenly they have to look inwards and say, "Okay, maybe we need to make our own wine from our own grapes. But I think Australia as a whole... Um, you are so much at the forefront on many levels but I think as many other countries you get stuck in being great value for money and you deliver such good good character and like easy to like quaffable wines and it's risky to get stuck in that as well because the top wines of this country they're amazing and it's difficult if you get stuck in between uh, being seen as the deliverer of the highest value for money type of wine and then on the other end or the other side you want to show your incredible quality at high price there's a bridge in between there that needs to be filled and I think that's a little bit of a challenge still but there is so much goodness um, and so much greatness out there that I think that it will only be a matter of time and, and you'll fill that gap in between the, the great value and the absolute top-notch quality. 
And we're here today in Coonawarra in South Australia where you're helping judge the Limestone Coast Wine Awards. How have you found the region here? You know, I've been to almost every region that produces wine of quality in Australia and I said to Sue Hodder some years ago that Coonawarra is still a place that I haven't been to and also the Granite Belt not that they are a very important wine growing region maybe but it's one of those little bucket list tick-offs and Coonawarra seemed I found it strange that I hadn't been here because I've been in South Australia like eight nine times and I can't believe I haven't done that extra you know that extra trip coming down here so it was a very good opportunity for me to come and learn about the region and to taste the wines and to get to know the people and to understand the potential of the place. And I think Kunawara has had a bit of a dip uh, where from the beginning you were the famous Cabernet origin, one of the top benchmark areas of the world uh, when it comes to Cabernet and also to a certain extent Shiraz. Uh, but then there were some years that the wines didn't really impress that much and Margaret River came in and I think took over a little bit of that crown of being the best in the country. But I've seen now so many beautiful wines that I think that it's time for Kunawara to come back and, and fight for them, for that crown. And also some areas that I hadn't realized existed <laughs> because that limestone coast is quite a it's a big stretch of land and there's so many styles and quality levels that I had no idea existed so I think for my enlightenment I've seen places that I didn't expect along this limestone coast and I think they have a great future ahead with cool climate and more innovation with alternative varieties as well and ocean-influenced uh, wine styles. And so I think there's a, there's a good future ahead. <laughs> That is Limestone Coast International Judge, uh, Wine Show International Judge Madeline Stenrath there speaking with Elsie Adamo. And the trophies were handed out last night for that wine show and the Bill Redmond Best Wine of Show Trophy at the Limestone Coast Wine Show went to Yolumba's 2021 Sanctum Coonawarra Cabernet Sauvignon, which also took out the trophies for Best Cabernet Sauvignon and Best Red Wine of Show. Madeline was asked to pick her favourite and she gave her International Judges Award to Brandon Sons Wines 2021 Sanctuary Cabernet Sauvignon. So congratulations to all of the winners. Uh, you're with Selena Green on this Friday afternoon for the Country Hour. Now, if you want to see what it takes to be among the best shearers and wool handlers in Australia and New Zealand, then you better get yourself to Jamestown this weekend because it's hosting the National Sports Shear Competition over the next few days and there will be some hot competition. Matt Sharkey is the Chair of the Nationals Committee. Thanks for coming on the Country Hour. Yeah, thanks for having me. Exciting weekend ahead. Uh, a lot of work, I'm sure, has got in to get to this point. But firstly, how long has it been since uh, the, the competition was held here in South Australia and at the Jamestown site? Um, so it's never been held at Jamestown. Uh, this is the first time for us. We um, we built this shed in 2019 with the with the goal of hosting this event. Um, and it's yeah, so it hasn't actually been in South Australia for eight, I think it's 18 years this year. So um, the last time was down at Millicent in the southeast. So it's, it's a pretty big event to have back in South Australia, which is exciting for us. Fantastic. So a national championship, uh, so the best of the best is going to be competing this weekend. Yeah, that's correct. So you've got our open grade um, shears from all around Australia. Um, 
They're uh, obviously they're the best of their state that have come here to compete for the title to um, to represent Australia uh, next year. They'll go over to New Zealand compete against the Kiwis over there in Masterton next year. And yeah, then you've also got your development grades through your novice, intermediate, and seniors, which are up and coming younger shearers and wool handlers that are showing off their skills. So for those who are competing this weekend, what's been the path for them to get to this point? So state by state, it's a little bit different um, what, how they pick their development sides. A lot of them are picked through just as, you know, the ones that are coming out and are, are leading in their grades and are showing you know, a, bit, a fair bit of interest in the, in the shearing industry. And then when you move on to open, so they're the, they're the best out of your state. So they've had to compete in uh, a certain amount of shows in each state and then they're obviously the, the best three shearers that went to a state final. They they come to Jamestown this year and get to shear for their state and see if they can take out the title overall. Fantastic. So you've got a couple of days of competition. Talk us through how it works. Uh, yeah, so actually in here today, all the teams are here. Oh, sorry, we've also got New Zealand, which is, is cool to have over here. They're all here today having a practice day today. They get a well, like 40 sheep each team just to have a look over and get a feel through and get their gear set up right. And then tomorrow we have a Jamestown show shear, which is more of an event for us and a bit of fun. Um, obviously, that's another sort of practice day for the teams, but it also gives opportunity for any local shearers and wool handlers or anyone else that's travelled around that's not necessarily in the state team that want to have a uh, test themselves against the best, as we said before. They can have a crack at that tomorrow. So we've got a about 150 competitors tomorrow all up for that. And then Sunday is our nationals, the actual national competition day. So that's when all the, the state teams just go head-to-head and uh, have a crack at it from there. So there's about 90 competitors all up from each state there. A tough job for the judges. What sort of thing are the judges looking for for a top competitor? Uh, uh, yeah, so obviously time comes into it. You get time points for, for once the first person finishes. It, it gets time calculated after that. And then also then it's obviously second cuts of wool, you know, if you actually nick a sheep, that sort of stuff, the quality of the job. So the quality of the job is the biggest, biggest probably part of this. So it really is showing off the best shearers in the, in the country. And as you mentioned before, for the, those who are selected as the best uh, for Australia, they, they then go on to represent us uh, internationally. Yeah, that's correct. So, yeah, there's open shearers and open wool handlers will uh, go off to represent Australia in New Zealand this year, which is, yeah, that's obviously what their goal is at the end of it. And it's good to go and have a test against the, the Kiwis, which, which happened here, like I said, Saturday night as well. So we've got the three best Kiwi shearers and two wool handlers and um, two blade shearers here. So they have a fantastic test Saturday night. I, I'm not 100% sure, but I think the Aussies might have lost the last one. So they're looking for redemption back on home soil. Right. Okay. Well, and hopefully that home court advantage works out for them there. Yeah, definitely. You touched on the facility that uh, was built. So the first time this is hosting this competition and really yep. built with the hope of um, being a host to this competition. Tell us about the, the fantastic facility you've got there. So basically in, in 2019, we well, we're going to upgrade our existing shearing shed we had and we thought, well, that's same for the guy and see what happens. And there's a shearer shortage at the time, which is a big thing, and we thought shearer training was a big investment in the area. So we actually built six stand perfect shearing shed for this event, but also for shearer training to train learner shearers and that moving forward. And we created a very good partnership with Heinegger Australia. Um, they helped us set this up. So for the last, yeah, sort of four years, we've been running learner schools and training days and stuff here, which is which has helped a lot for the industry. But then, obviously, moving forward to have this event, hopefully, one of many to come.
What about spectators? I mean, if there are people in the Jamestown area this weekend who are keen to see and maybe they've never seen this kind of competition before, are people welcome to come and have a look? Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, competition starts at uh, 8 o'clock Saturday morning, tomorrow morning, and then again um, Sunday morning. It's free entry all weekend. So, yeah, definitely if you're around the area or looking for something over the weekend and not far away and want to travel up and interested, it's definitely be worth coming to have a look at. There'll be plenty happening and it'll be very exciting to see. Fantastic. Matt, great to chat to you today. All the best with a fantastic competition. All the best to everyone competing over the weekend. Thanks for your time. No worries. Thank you very much. Matt Sharkey there. He's chair of the Jamestown Nationals Committee and so the National Sports Sheer Competition is being held at Jamestown this week if you want to get yourself along. Should be a great sight to see. Uh, lastly, uh, an update on a story from yesterday, if you're listening in. Uh, the news is that more than a 1,000 dairy factory workers who've been striking this week in Victoria have returned to work today, but no one knows for how long they'll be back on the job. 13 factory sites in Victoria ground to a halt for 48 hours as workers went on strike over paying conditions, meaning dairy farmers had to pour over 100,000 litres of milk down the drain. Well, Tim Kennedy, the National Secretary of the United Workers' Union, says workers are back at work but the disagreement between them and the major milk factories remains unresolved. Uh, He's confirmed that dairy strikes could return next week if negotiations don't go well with milk processors. And if that happens, there could be implications for milk supply going forward. So if you want to read more about this, uh, Warwick Long's done a great piece for us on the ABC Rural website. It's abc.net.au forward slash rural. You can go read that right now. While you're there, you can also read some more about some of the other stories that we've brought you this week on the Country Hour, including Eliza Berlage's story about sheepskin going to waste. Karen Hunt's got a great story about the disappearance of windmills from Australian paddocks. And Lily McEwer's taken an excellent look at the impact of the gap in the wild dog fence. So go to that website, abc.net.au forward slash rural, and you can read all about those stories and much, much more while you're at it. Let's check in with Sonia Feldoff because she's with you for Friday afternoons. Hello. Hello to you, Selena. Now, do you know what my Medicare is? Uh, is that the online where you go and you've got to try and dig around in the website and try and find all your details in there? Well, that I think that's where you can uh, access your Medicare. But there's a new system that's been in place since October 1. Not many of us know about it just yet, but it's designed to try to make your health journey a little bit easier. What does it mean? Uh, how do you sign up? And it's designed to keep you out of hospital for as long as possible. Well, so we all like that idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're going to try and find out a little bit more about it, whether you're eligible, whether you're someone who should be signing up for this. It's a voluntary scheme. So the more of us who know about it and whether it's going to make an impact in our lives, the better. So hopefully we'll be able to fill in some of those details for you ourselves. Now, also, we hear a lot about identity theft, but what about image theft? I don't think any of us would love the idea of a photo, uh, of your image turning up on a photo or a video, say, in you know, a porn- pornographic video. or, or stuff of nightmares. It is the stuff of nightmares. And one Adelaide woman has li- lived this. What can we learn from her experience? Uh, we'll also look into that very shortly. All right. Thanks, Sonia. Have a great Friday show. Sonia Feldoff, she'll be on your radio this afternoon. That's it for me for today and all this week. So thanks so much for your company. It's just going on to news time, one o'clock. Lend us your ears. Download the ABC Listen app and find all our audio in one handy place. Tap on the ABC radio icon and go to our station page. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.